Father, we all come before you and we thank you uh, for this gift of your word. We thank you uh, for the lively retelling uh, of this true event that happened many years ago. Uh, We thank you for uh, the good news that it brings, uh, the promise uh, of hope, uh, and and naturally, of course, the good news that it was uh, for the woman and for her son. And we pray that uh, the lessons that uh, are alive still uh, today from this ancient story uh, will come to roost in our own hearts. We pray that you will teach us uh, and change us uh, and help us to grow closer to you uh, as we gather in your name around your word together this morning. Amen. This story uh, really is a masterpiece of drama and detail. I hope you were able to uh, follow the story itself just as it was read. Um, It's the account of the prophet Elisha raising a boy from the dead. If you look at your Bible front to back, it's the third out of ten resurrection events in the whole Bible. Uh, And that's why it's part of our series called Alive, which we're picking up again today. But while this passage introduces us to one out of ten resurrection stories in the Bible, uh, the thread that really carries the story isn't the resurrection event itself, uh, but I would say it's the person of the boy's mother, uh, the wealthy woman of Shunem. This worthy woman is one of many worthy women that we meet uh, in the pages of the Bible. Now you could probably gather that by instinct, that she really is the main uh, player, in this story, uh, that the woman is the focus of the narrative. But let's line up all the characters and eliminate them one by one, looking at clues within the text itself, just to show you again that this story really is about her. So in order of appearance, we have Elisha the prophet, we have the woman herself, uh, her husband, Gehazi, who is Elisha's servant, the son, uh, and God, who is called the Lord. Now we're going to leave God there, the Lord, Uh, Because uh, it's the thing that goes without saying that every passage in Scripture is there to reveal something to us about the nature of God and his work. Uh, And it's obviously God who works the miracle of raising the boy from the dead. But it is telling, I think, in the story uh, that the Lord is the last one mentioned. Uh, He doesn't appear for himself until verse 27 uh, in a story that started back in verse 8. So we'll leave him there. Uh, but let's, uh, let's follow the other emphases in the story. So working now from least important to most important, we can start by ruling out the woman's husband. He barely writes a mention in the story, and when he does, it's in relation to his wife. He's not uh, the man of Shunem, he's not a wealthy man, he is the wealthy woman's husband. Uh, it's also interesting that it's, uh, it's common to meet couples in the Bible who have no children, But when the reason is given, it's always that the woman is referred to as barren, except in this story. The reason that the woman doesn't have a son is said to be because her husband is too old, tremendously old. So what we can tell is that there is a young, capable, even fertile woman married to some old bloke, probably by arrangement, and she's now the one who seems to carry all the insight and initiative in the household. Sound familiar? Uh, next, uh, next we can rule out Elisha's servant, Gehazi. Uh, there's something of substance missing with Gehazi. Uh, he tries to fight the woman off when she clings in desperation to Elisha's feet. Uh, if you read into the next chapter, chapter 5, you also learn that uh, Gehazi is tainted with greed uh, and he's punished for that. 
uh, which may or may not explain why God was not pleased to work through him, even though he held Elisha's staff and, and followed Elisha's instructions. Uh, it might seem rude to rule out the sun next, uh, but he really does just seem to be the vehicle used to tell the story of God's greatness through Elisha uh, and to highlight the, the character of the mother. Now, it does get tight at the top, uh, but we can rule out Elisha next, I would say, pretty confidently. The obvious reasons to leave Elisha there uh, at the top are that it, he's the one who does the miracle, right? He's the one, uh, through God, who raises the boy to life. Now, also, if, you, if we look at this in context, in, in, the, in the book of, uh, of Kings, uh, this passage falls in the middle of a clump of stories all about Elisha. He is the key character of, of this whole clump, uh, the story is one in a big group designed to prove Elisha's credentials as the man of God. But, just as the husband is only spoken of in relation to his wife, uh, Elisha is really only important because of his relation to God. And it comes out in the passage, in the passage, Elisha is only called uh, by name three times, but he's referred to as the man of God eight times. Uh, and so that's why we carefully keep God in the picture as well, because God is, is always present throughout. Uh, but it's also, also um, and although the passage is obviously designed, uh, part of uh, a, a group of passages designed to bolster Elisha's reputation, on this occasion, Elisha is not the person of action or initiative in the, in the story. Uh, that position belongs to the wealthy woman of Shunem. It's this woman who gives us a picture of real faith and faithfulness, which makes the title of today's talk. And I use all three of those words deliberately. It's real. This is a real story. And I say that because it's a true story. Okay? But sometimes using the word story can make you think this is make-believe, this is fiction. But it, it, it is true. It is actual fact. But also it's real because the portrait of this woman is just so uh, authentic and believable. Uh, the almost unbelievable heights of her faith are painted with perfectly believable pain, passion, and even uh, shades of imperfection. Uh, but she's also a woman of faith. It's her trust and certainty that shines when she embarks in secret to, to seek healing for her son. Uh, and faithfulness. I use deliberately as well because the faith of that journey that she made did not come from nowhere. Uh, we see already in the, in the early verses of the, of the story uh, that uh, th this is just an extension of a life that's already lived with spiritual insight and practical generosity. This is a, real, a story of real faith and faithfulness. Now, before we spring back into the story, I want to remind you again just of the general purpose of the resurrection miracles in the Bible a general sort of thing that I've kind of been bringing up as we've done this series. Uh, these resurrection events do two things. Uh, because they're miracles, uh, they fall in line with the miracles in general. So first, they authenticate the messenger. So like in this story, how God chooses to not work through Gehazi, but he does work through Elisha. Elisha is the man of God. Pay attention to Elisha and less attention to Gehazi. The people around Elisha in those days were supposed to see his works and pay attention to the things he said. 
Uh, also, interestingly, Elisha follows on the heels of his master, Elijah, another famous prophet in the Old Testament you may have heard of. Now, when the time came for Elijah to move on, Elisha, who was his apprentice, asked Elijah for a double portion of his power. And if you read these stories between 1 and 2 Kings, you find that the story of Elijah tells tw- uh, seven miracles performed by Elijah. And then very deliberately, today's passage falls in the middle of 14 miracles, twice as many miracles um, performed by Elisha in a block between chapters 2 and 7. Tellingly also, the Apostle John, who later recorded the events of Jesus' life, said this. He said, Jesus did many other signs which are not written in this book. But these ones are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The Gospels are written uh, telling the stories of Jesus' miraculous acts to authenticate the messenger so that we can believe he is the real deal. And so if Elijah does seven and Elisha 14 and Jesus just way too many to count, that tells you something uh, about the measure of the man. But second, the miracles are themselves the message. They are the message. They're never just stunts and magic tricks, just designed to draw attention and to wear the crowds. That's the stuff of street magicians. But almost no, there are, there are no street magicians with anything interesting to actually say. Certainly nothing worthwhile or, and no wisdom to impart. If you can make a card appear behind a child's ear, that might show that you're pretty nifty at sleight of hand. But if you can command the very fabric of creation and you can order around the wind and waves, if you can boss sickness and death, well, that reveals the character of God. It reveals that God in his character is loving and generous and compassionate. And it reveals the will of God as well, that God wills a world of peace and order and even eternal life. So let's go back to the story this portrait of real faith and faithfulness. Down the side of the screen, you can see there's the whole text of today's passage. Like I said at the start, I'd encourage you to have it open on your lap because you can't read it from up there. Uh, It's a story uh, that highlights uh, um, the the goodness and greatness of God in a story carried along by a good and great woman. First, we see that real faith and faithfulness sees and gives. Uh, This is a woman with spiritual insight. She recognises in Elisha that he is a man of God and also that he's just a man. Well, that's womanly levels of insight, I reckon, to recognise greatness and need in the same moment. So she religiously gives him food and, and a roof on his travels. But she goes further. She even instructs her husband to build an extension on the roof of the house. Now we know this is a wealthy couple, but in that day and culture, it was not unusual for everyone to sleep in a common area of the house. So to have your own room would be pretty unusual, especially when you're just a visitor. Now you might be lucky enough to live in a house uh, with a spare room. Uh, You know, that's the room for guests when they come. But do you live in a house with a spare room for every guest who might come? You know, oh, that's, that's the grandparents' room. Oh, that's John, John's room. 
uh, this is Brenda's room when she visits. Not at all. In verse 10, she goes further. She says, you know, we're not just rolling out a mat or petitioning off a corner for when he comes, but this room will be the room for the man of God when he comes. And when he's not here, that door is shut and no one else is going in. It will have a roof. It'll have walls. It'll have a bed, a table, a chair, and even a lamp. This is a woman. She thinks of everything. You might have a spare room, uh, like I said, for all the guests, but no one sets up a room just like this, with this much uh, individual uh, attention to detail. It's deliberate, attentive and generous. That's real faith and faithfulness. Real faith and faithfulness is content. In time, it occurs to Elisha to reward this woman's faithfulness. Uh, He summons her. And he asks, would you like me to put in a good word to the king or to the commander of the army? What can I do for you? Uh, Is anyone causing you trouble, in other words? I've got connections, you know. Maybe I can make some of your problems go away. Maybe I can get you some favours or special treatment. You know, ask me and I will do. The woman simply says, I dwell among my own people. Well, not only does she prove her contentment by not asking for anything... With a bit of context, you can also hear her faith in action in these words. For the Israelites to dwell in their own land and among their own people, well, that is deeply connected to enjoying the blessings of God's covenant. See, her statement shows that her own contentment isn't found in her wealth. We learned about her wealth, right? You might think it's easy for a rich person to be content. But her contentment is found in the memory of God's faithfulness And he's kept promises. So I wonder what the source of your contentment is. Or what do you blame for your discontent? Does your personal happiness rise and fall with your savings account? uh, Or with your reputation? Or whether or not your house or toys are better than the ones that your neighbours have? Or is it the memory of God's unfailing love for you? His only son given for you? Is that all the shelter that you need from the waves? That is all the shelter you need from the waves. Well, Gehazi, the servant, has an idea. Uh, This is his best moment, actually. He says in verse 14 to Elisha, he says, well, you know, she has no son and her husband is very old. Now, that seems like a big hole, doesn't it, for someone who is apparently so content And we see soon enough that it's a wound for this woman. She feels this deeply because when Elisha tells her that she'll have a son in a year, her response is not the response of faith that you might expect. It's not composure. In verse 16, she says, No, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to me about that. That is, this is too serious. What does that outburst tell us? tells us she's a real woman isn't she is a real person and Elisha has struck a nerve there's obviously a deep sorrow there is something missing even in the life of someone who is so apparently content also then does that mean that her contentment earlier was a lie Uh, was it just a brave face perhaps it was a lack of faith because she wasn't willing to ask for something uh, that she wanted or felt she needed 
Well, I don't see any of those things in this woman. I'd be surprised if you do. See, faith in a real human, in the real world, has to grapple with many things. Contentment cannot be contingent on what you have or don't have. Because faith finds contentment in the Lord. And faith will happily live without the things the Lord hasn't given. A content faith will happily live without the things the Lord hasn't given. I'll take it a step further. In the spirit of generosity, faith will happily give up many things that the Lord has given in order to make sacrifices for the good of others. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment is one of the great hallmarks of real faith. You can be content even when you don't have. Real faith and faithfulness we see in this woman is also tender and tenacious. A miracle occurs. The old fellow sighs a son in his old age. The woman's child is born. Uh, and one day as a boy, and without warning, the boy complains of a sudden pain in his head and he's carried to his mother. And in the space of two verses, we see the full range of motherhood in all of its glory. In verse 20, she nurses her son on her lap until he slips away. And in verse 21, she springs into action. Tender and tenacious. And real faith and faithfulness knows when to apply each. See, many would see the plight of the child and flap and flutter around in anxiety, neither actually achieving anything nor giving the main thing required for the hour, the love and the comfort that that child demands. But she is both fully present for the need of her child in his hour of need. And then when she's not needed by him anymore, she springs into action once he's gone. And her action isn't aimless. Uh, this isn't a fluster. Uh, she takes her boy to the bedroom and bed of Elisha. Uh, she secures the door. She fetches a donkey to go directly to the man of God himself. A whole day's journey away and then another day back. And how's this? Real faith and faithfulness says all is well. If there is any one detail in this passage that deserves thorough contemplation, it's this. That the woman immediately after her only son's death, twice, she says, all is well. First time she says it is to her own husband. Uh, he asks her why she's going to Elisha at this moment. She deceives him. She really does. She deliberately chooses to not tell him about their son's death. And she simply says, all is well. Then, when the aging Elisha sends Gehazi out as runner to greet the woman, and he says in verse 26, is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? Covering all bases, she says simply, all is well. What is this? What is she saying? It's definitely deception. It is. But is it a lie? Or is it deception that speaks truth, a greater truth? 
does she know that her son will be raised? And so she's saying in faith in that moment, all is well because all soon will be well. Does she simply believe her son is in heaven? Honestly, we cannot know for sure. Uh, This brings us back to the issue again of being content that we looked at a couple of points ago, of being so sure of God and his faithfulness that whatever turmoil you're in or whatever has happened and whatever might yet happen to you, that God is good all the time. That in the big scheme, this blip in your life or even uh, on the world scale, this blight on history's page, well, all these things fall only ever in the greater story of what God is doing and what God will finish and what God will make right. Saying all is well. This is praying to God, your will be done. It's saying all is well when your son is dead. It's singing as we'll sing in our last song, it is well with my soul. In the second verse, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well. Real faith and faithfulness is tested with fire. That's a promise. It's quite obvious that this is a real whole woman. She is able to say all is well and I believe that she says it with true faith even while the deepest parts of her soul are on fire. And this comes out in her, in her outburst in verses 27 and 28. Uh, the floodgates burst open when she comes face to face with the man of God. She throws decorum to the wind and she grabs his feet. Her bitter distress is on full display. And then she speaks with, some really, with really some force and directness. I never asked you for a son. Didn't I say, don't deceive me? Gee, she's almost blaming him, isn't she? Uh, This is dangerous territory. But remember, this is a real woman. The life of faith is no golden ticket. Among the many promises that come along with the life of faith are these. Trials will come. People will hate you. You will know deep sorrow and you will suffer loss. One day, in all likelihood, you yourself will die. But, as Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Real faith and faithfulness is rewarded by God. It's quite obvious in the resurrection account uh, that it's God who is at work. Gehazi runs ahead with Elisha's staff. He has no luck. Elisha himself, when he gets to the room of the, uh, his own room where the boy is lying, uh, he, it's obvious that Elisha himself has no magical properties. Uh, he paces the room. He lies across the body. He attempts some kind of uh, mouth-to-mouth. It's only that he prayed to the Lord that the boy comes back to, back to life. Why does the boy sneeze seven times? I think because he did. 
I don't know. There's probably some symbolism in the number seven, but I think it's written because, because that's what happened. It's a true story. And the boy is presented to his mother and they all live happily ever after. Now I say that real faith and faithfulness is rewarded by God. That's obviously the case in this story, isn't it? Obviously. It's rewarded by God. If the woman hadn't first shown hospitality to Elisha, she would never have received this son. And if she hadn't run to Elisha, then her son wouldn't have been raised again. Her faith and her faithfulness don't go unrewarded. Now this truth, uh, that faith and faithfulness is rewarded by God, it leaps from the story and it stands even though there are many childless mothers and countless Christians who have suffered loss. Just this week, in my small circle of people I know, two ministers in churches in Brisbane who I know lost their sons. One an 11-year-old boy to a brain tumour, and one a 30-year-old boy in a car accident, a kid I, I used to go to church with as a kid. The losses of the many don't disprove the particular shape of the reward that uh, is received uh, in the woman in this great story. But it does inform our expectations. Friends, even in the Bible, even in this book, even in the highlights reel of God's story, in more than a thousand pages covering thousands of years, and hundreds of generations, and millions upon millions of people, it is only ten times that anyone is raised from the dead. Only ten. Remember, the miracles are the message. They're a signpost to what is possible. They're a signpost, more importantly, to who God is. They don't teach us what's normal They're miracles, people. They're unusual. They don't teach us what's normal. They point to what's possible and they point us to the life to come. Miracles are no promise in themselves. They're no promise of what's normal. They're no promise of what's every day. They've always been unusual. But let's also remember the context of this story. See, the birth of the son himself was a miracle from God. In that context, it's not particularly surprising that the woman might have expected that God would restore the same son. God does a lot of mysterious, confusing things in this life. But you can see, can't you, how a woman who received a son by, the, by, the, by an act of God that she never expected to receive would also, you know, several years later when the boy is suddenly taken away, think, what is God doing here? It, it, it does not quite compute uh, with God's plan. And so I think it's quite reasonable in a way <laughs> that she would expect uh, a miracle of this shape. Also extraordinary, right? What a woman of extraordinary faith. But in the context, there's a little bit in there that's, that's understandable. But that's another theme in the Bible, by the way, that we see come up over and over again. A boy's miraculous birth to parents apparently unable to conceive. Followed by the loss of a son 
either to estrangement or to sin or even to death, followed by the restoration of the Son. Does that sound familiar? It's the path that Jesus' life took. And Jesus' life too is a true story, true events, real for him and for you, a parable as well. A parable for the life of everyone who belongs to him. You too were lost. A child of God, dead in your sins. But you have been rescued and you have been given new life and a promise for a life to come. The woman in today's story gives us a picture of what that life might look like. Uh, Of what what, uh, life in this world, a life of faith, might look like. This is no sanitised version of faith and faithfulness. This is real faith and real faithfulness in the real world. Faith that is attentive to God as well as being attentive to those in need. Faith that is content with little. A faithfulness that is tender with little ones. A faith that says all is well, even as that same faith is tested with fire. And faith that will taste God's sweet reward on the last day. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, uh, we could have many responses uh, to this word from your mouth today. Uh, I'm certain that this story will have touched different people uh, in different ways. That is uh, the beauty of your word. We thank you that uh, one thing is for certain as we read this story, this story is real. Not only did it really happen, but it just feels real. It's true. This is a real person. A woman who experiences real highs and real lows. And who is real faithful. God, we, uh, as we place our own life against this woman's example, it's easy to see ways that we don't measure up. Father, as we take the next more important step and place our own lives against the example of of your Holy One, Jesus. Again, it is so obvious our lives don't measure up. Our Father in Heaven, we are sorry for our lack of faith. We are sorry for the way that expresses itself as we uh, walk around with closed eyes, not attentive to the needs around us. As we uh, bumble around in discontent and grumbling. As we... Uh, choose not to ask for things uh, that you would be happy to give. Father, we pray that you will help us uh, to be bold in our faith, uh, even as we're raw. We pray that you will strengthen our faith as we look to Jesus and cling to the man of God. We pray that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.